If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you need a Bible, uh, there's one in the pew in front of you that you can use. And I uh, invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at verses 4 through uh, 10. Let me just say a, um, uh, just a reminder of kind of where we are in, in Peter's letter uh, we're kind of still in this first main section of Peter's le- letter. He's laying out reminders and encouragements to uh, the churches that he's writing to, helping them to remember who they are, uh, that they are elect exiles. They are resident aliens where God has placed them, scattered across the, the Roman Empire. And, and in that, he's calling them not only to remember who they are, Uh, but in light of who they are, to think about how they are to serve God in the places where he has them. Uh, And that's a large part of what we'll look at this morning in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Uh, You're welcome to remain seated, and I'll just, I'll read from this part of God's Word. Uh, Let's give our attention to this. This is God's Word. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? and help us in all things to see Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Near the end of World War II, the British government decided to alter their tanks with a significant improvement, uh, a modification that would enable their soldiers to carry out their warfare more effectively. You might think, what was that improvement? It was not a new technological advance in their targeting system, nor was it some sort of revolutionary new uh, track system to improve the mobility of the tanks. Rather, in these tanks, they installed tea kettles. They installed tea kettles so that their soldiers could make tea while they were stuck, stuck inside these tanks for long periods of time. You might be wondering, why in the world would they install tea kettles inside of a tank? Well, they recognized that while you could take the Englishman out of England, you couldn't take England out of the Englishman. Wherever he was, he was English, and the English value tea time. It's part of their culture. And so you end up, I think still today, with tanks, you know, at that time in World War II, 
tanks across Europe carrying both English men and English culture. Uh, people carry their culture with them wherever, wherever they go. Uh, often this dispersion results in kind of enclaves of particular cultures nestled within a different country even. So you can think about, for example, Chinatown in San Francisco or Little Italy in Manhattan. You walk into these, uh, these little enclaves within a bigger city and it's like you're walking into a different country. They've preserved significant aspects of their culture. You can smell it in the food that they're cooking. You can see it in the way people interact with each other, their greetings, their manners. Uh, they have preserved, in, in, in some large measure, their culture, even though they are displaced, if you will, even though they are living in a place that is not their native land. In this passage, uh, Peter is telling us that the church is much like that. Christian communities belong to the kingdom of God. Uh, Christians belong to the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom that's present. It has come in Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection. The kingdom of God is here. But it's also a kingdom that is yet to come in its fullness. We await the full revelation of the kingdom of God where he will put an end to sin, where all will be filled with righteousness, will stand in the presence of God uh, without the burden of sin any longer. And Peter's reminding us here that wherever Christians are established, they're to bring the culture of that kingdom with them. Where, wherever they live, here and now, they are to bring the culture of the kingdom with them, kind of like a colony of heaven set up on earth. But unlike uh, the enclaves of Chinatown or Little Italy that are just kind of specific areas within a bigger city or within a larger country, the church's mission is to spread the kingdom of God over the whole earth, to, to bring the, the good news of that kingdom to the ends of the earth until the glory of the Lord covers all. And we're to do that through our worship and our witness as we trust and follow Jesus Christ who has brought the kingdom. Peter gets at this idea by taking the language, the description uh, from the Old Testament, the description of Israel and of the temple, and saying, this is fulfilled in you, the church. The, the, these categories, these descriptions of Israel and the temple, these are about and fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. So this morning, what I'd like for us to do uh, is to talk about three things that Peter says about the church as the temple, all of which is connected to this idea of the church being uh, a little bit of heaven on earth, the colony of heaven on earth meant to spread the good news of the kingdom over all the earth. So we're going to look at three things, the purpose of the temple, the humility of the temple, and the construction of the temple. The purpose the humility, and the construction of the temple. So let's look first at the purpose of the temple. Notice verse 4 and 5. Uh, Peter describes the church as living stones built upon the living stone being built into a spiritual house. This is his way of describing the temple. And the purpose of this house is to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. In other words, the purpose of the church as the new temple is to worship and sacrifice. Now, if you know anything about 
the Old Testament temple, or if you were in Sunday school and heard Ken talk a little bit about that this morning, uh, you know that a large part of what happened in the Old Testament temple involved sacrifices as the way of worshiping uh, the Lord. People would bring different types of offerings, different types of sacrifices. Often there was blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This was the way God provided forgiveness for his people in kind of shadows and ways of pointing ahead to what Jesus would ultimately do through his death on the cross. The temple was the place where God's people offered their worship and received forgiveness through sacrifice. We don't have a literal place where we go to today. Uh, You don't bring animals to church on Sunday. I don't stand up here and cut their throats and spill their bloods and sprinkle the blood on you. Aren't you glad that we don't have to do that uh, any longer? So what does Peter mean when he says that the church as the spiritual house, this new temple, is still engaged in this task of worshiping through sacrifice, which is what he's talking about when he says offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's the same thing Paul describes in Romans 12, where he says, therefore, on account of the mercies of God, let your, I'm paraphrasing here, let your whole life be an offering of worship, be a sacrifice to God, a living sacrifice. We don't bring animals to die to shed their blood for the forgiveness of sins because Christ has offered the perfect sacrifice in our place. He has given himself as the fulfillment of all of those sacrifices. And what he calls for in us is not to keep bringing the blood of bulls and goats, but to offer our whole lives as an act of worship to the Lord. The church is meant to be the new temple engaged in whole life worship whether that's in your family relationships, whether that's at work, at school, wherever God has placed you, your whole life should be under that umbrella, that category of worship, your life offered to God, made acceptable through what Jesus has done in your place. And notice, all of us in this spiritual house are are the holy priesthood, or as he says in verse 9, a royal priesthood. Notice the expansion there of that category. Under the old covenant, there were just specific groups from one specific tribe set apart to be priests and to do the priestly work uh, in the temple or the tabernacle or whatever the case may be. But under the new covenant, the church, all of us function in some way as a royal priesthood. All of us are offering our whole lives to God as an act of worship and sacrifice. The purpose of the new temple, at the very least, involves worship and sacrifice. But that's not all. When Peter brings in this uh, imagery of the temple, he's, he's, he's reminding us to go back, to think about how the temple functioned among God's people under the old covenant. And one of the ways you might describe that is that the temple functioned to expand the knowledge and the presence of God over all the earth. Um, If you go back and read in the book of Exodus and other places, the description of the tabernacle and the temple that God's people were supposed to build, it can be a little confusing. There's a lot of details. Uh, There's all these fabrics, and we don't know exactly what all all of them are. There's all these measurements, a cubit. Anybody know what a cubit is? About 18 inches or so. There's a lot of detail as you read through the Old Testament about the temple. 
But there's a very clear purpose for the temple, amidst all the detail which can be confusing. What was the temple for? The temple was the place where God dwelled, a holy God dwelled among his people. The presence of God among the people of God in blessing. And that blessing of the presence of God among his people was meant to go out, to cover the whole earth. So if think just with me for a second about the Garden of Eden. It's kind of a type of a temple. It's a small place set apart within the world that God has created. And what do we find in the garden? We find God present with his people in blessing, calling them to multiply, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to exercise dominion over it, to subdue it. In other words, the Garden of Eden is kind of like a little temple. It's a sacred space. God dwells with his people, his presence with his people in blessing with the idea that his presence would expand out from there. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's the main purpose of the temple. So that when Peter brings this to bear on you as believers, what he's saying is, you're the place. Now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has died and has risen and poured out his Holy Spirit on you as his people, you're the place where God dwells on earth. You're like a little colony of heaven on earth, just like the temple was. It was God's presence, his dwelling place on earth. But it's no longer localized. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not confined to a particular place in first century Palestine, for example. But wherever God's people are, God is present with them in blessing, and that blessing of his presence is meant to expand over all of the earth. We are the people of God, meant to bring the blessing of God's grace more and more into the world. So the purpose of the temple, whole life worship, and to bring the blessing of God's presence more and more into the world. But notice the attitude that Peter implies and suggests to us as the new temple. It's an attitude of humility. This is not triumphalism. Uh, this is not taking, uh, bringing the kingdom by force. God's kingdom doesn't grow uh, through violence. It doesn't grow through force. It grows by grace uh, in a mysterious way as God changes hearts and brings people into his kingdom. And part of the way God's kingdom grows is through the humility of God's people as we direct others to Jesus and to what we have found in him. Uh, notice specifically uh, the humility that Peter points out uh, in verses 9 and 10. We'll start in verse 10. Why does Peter end this way? He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. Seems like a strange way to end this section. Peter's hearkening back to the prophet Hosea. Uh, if any of you know the story of Hosea, Hosea was a prophet uh, who was told to take a wife who was a harlot uh, and to start his family with her. And when she did what harlots do, he was told to go and win her back and to demonstrate to her the faithful love of a husband. And the Lord told Hosea, uh, this relationship that you have with your wife, who's a harlot, this is the way my relationship is with you, Israel. 
I have loved you, I have made you my own, and you run off after other gods. And so he gives Hosea a difficult object lesson in his life to demonstrate God's uh, devoted love for his people. It's amazing to think about the love of God in that type of example. So this quotation is right from Hosea, where God says to his people Israel, he's not speaking to Gentiles here, he's speaking to his chosen and precious people. He's saying, because of your unfaithfulness to me, you were once not a people. Because of your unfaithfulness to me, you had once not received mercy. But God is a God of steadfast love. He is a God who saves his people, come what may. Not because of how good they are, but because of how good he is. And so he's reminding them here that their salvation is by grace and originates in the love of God who takes people who were not his people and he makes them his own. He takes people who did not have mercy and he makes them his own. And it's meant to remind us of humility and give us joy. If you are in Christ, Jesus chose you because he wants you for his own. You were not his people, but he has made you his people by gracious love. He's not just putting up with you. He loves you. He loves you enough that he gave himself for you to make you his own treasured possession. And those who have received and and believed this good news are called to humbly announce it to others. Notice again verse 9. We're called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus. Uh, Let it be clear that there is only one answer to the problems of this world. And it's not people. It's not even the church. It's Jesus. And so if you're, you're looking for hope and you're looking for grace and you're looking for mercy, you can find it in God's people. You can find it through God's people, but ultimately our hope is anchored in Jesus. And the people who belong to him are called to be people who proclaim his excellencies, not not their own, his greatness, not, not their own, his grace and mercy in the gospel as the solution and the answer to our problems. Wherever you are, you are called not to exalt yourself, but to be an ambassador of God's grace wherever he has placed you. And that requires humility. Much like John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus and then telling his disciples, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. And that's, that's what we want, isn't it? For the fame and the glory of Jesus to increase among us. And and we can fade into the background, however God wants to use us, but we want him to be up front and center. So there's humility of this new temple. Finally, note the construction of the new temple. Uh, two, Two things here. First, our identity as God's people is wrapped up in who Jesus is. Did you notice those parallels throughout the passage? We're living stones... And we come to him, the living stone. We're a spiritual house that's built on this cornerstone of Jesus, who's the stone that was rejected by the builders, but has become the choice, precious cornerstone upon which the whole house is built. He's he's chosen and precious. He's honored, even though he's rejected by men. 
You, as God's people in Christ, are chosen and precious. And though you may suffer and be rejected, there's honor for you as you are joined and connected to Jesus Christ. We are the living stones built upon the living stone. Everything revolves around Jesus. All that we are, as one author says, all that we are rests on all that Jesus is. And so as the living stones built upon the living stone, I'll just point out there's a corporate identity here. Um, They're all being built into one house, stone upon stone upon stone, living stones upon living stones. Uh, These are not individual stones who happen to be a building. This is a building that's comprised of individual stones. Or you might say this way, the church is a building, not a brick. You all are bricks, but you belong to the building. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? There's no Lone Ranger Christianity where I I can live the Christian life in isolation from other believers. We're, We're called to be brought into the community, to be living stones with other living stones, built into this spiritual house. We worship together, we witness together, we bring the blessings of the kingdom of God together as one people, one spiritual house. Well, what does that mean for us? At the very least, it means uh, that what we do on Sunday mornings and whenever we gather is important. That There's value, there's benefit, there's blessing spiritually in gathering together as God's people and displaying our connection to each other by physically being with each other. We equip one another, we encourage one another, we worship with one another so that we can go into the world as witnesses for the one who has brought us into his kingdom. It also means that we're to recognize that stones stacked on each other might sometimes rub each other in the wrong way. You know, you get a little jagged edge from somebody, it hurts, you get a little upset, there's a little bit of conflict, throw some elbows. Living stones on top of living stones, they're not dead stones on top of each other. Uh, it's just a, 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 a reality that the church is made up of sinners. Uh, <laughs> That if you want to find the perfect church, when you find it, don't join it because you will mess it up. <laughs> Jesus is the only living stone. He's, uh, he's the only perfect stone. He's the one upon whom we are built. He's the one to whom we look, and he's the one who gives grace so that when living stones are stacked on each other and there's a little bit of pressure, a little bit of conflict, a little bit of rubbing and friction, that he gives us grace to still love one another in, in the midst of it. Uh, the church is not a place that is conflict-free. Because the church is not a place that is sin-free. But the church is a place where Jesus is at work among his people, displaying his grace, working in you to show how great he is. And sometimes he shows that greatness through the ways that we lovingly forgive one another, bear with one another, encourage one another, uh, even when it's difficult, or even when you're difficult or I'm difficult, which happens uh, quite often, to be uh, quite frank. We are called to be gracious and patient with one another because God has placed us here in this spiritual building upon the rock, the stone, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. You probably gathered this as we were reading through this passage that the central issue in this whole passage is Jesus. Peter quotes three, he quotes six Old Testament passages here. He alludes to more than that. It's just rich in Old Testament connections here. But three of those six passages that he quotes are all what are called the stone passages in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, and Isaiah 8. All of these passages talk about 
the Messiah, the Christ, as the stone. He's the cornerstone laid in Zion. He's the one that's been rejected but made the chief cornerstone. And for those who reject him, he is a stumbling stone. It all revolves around your connection to Jesus. Even verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Central issue in this passage is how are you responding to Jesus, the stone, the cornerstone? There's a tight connection here between the stones and the stone. Everything turns on how you relate to Jesus. So there's a promise and there's a warning. The promise is for those who trust in Jesus, the stone rejected by men but accepted and honored by God, uh, if you trust in Jesus, he says, you'll never be disappointed. You'll never be put to shame. That's an amazing promise because we're constantly disappointed. Uh, we're constantly let down. We're often hoping for things to be better, for things to be different, for the world to change, for me to change, for you to change, and we're often disappointed and perhaps even we might say put to shame when we put our hope in the wrong places or too much hope in the wrong places. But Jesus is saying to us, follow me, take up your cross, die to yourself and follow me and you'll never regret it. You'll never come to the place with Jesus where you look at your life, where you look at how he's been at work in you, where you look at his grace and his mercy even through darkness, you'll never come to the point where you look at your life and you say, you know, it would have been better if I had never met Jesus. Even for those who have lost much, Jesus says it will be returned to you, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, all that you have lost in this life. Uh, Jim Elliott, famous missionary, uh, said he is no fool, who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And he gave his life as a missionary in service to Jesus. And he was no fool for doing that. Jesus says, if you trust in him, you'll never be put to shame. He offers real hope, uh, secure hope, safe hope. Um, you can lay all of your eggs in that basket. Why is this the case? It's the case because we've been brought out of darkness into marvelous Light And the way that we've been brought out of darkness is because Jesus was thrust into the darkness for you at the cross where the sky turned black as Jesus bore our judgment for sin in himself at the cross. He was thrust into darkness that he might bring us into light. It's good news. It's true that Jesus's hope never disappoints because he became the one who was not God's people at the cross so that we might be God's people through faith in him. He became the one at the cross who was shown no mercy, so that we might receive mercy from what he has done for us at the cross and at his resurrection. For those who trust in Jesus, there is no disappointment in him. Though you may be suffering, though you may even be facing rejection, as these people were who read this letter for the first time, you are honored in God's sight. You are chosen in Christ as his beloved people. Trust him. He will not disappoint you. For those who are not yet God's people, uh, if you're still considering the claims of Scripture, the claims of Jesus regarding who he is and what he's done 
in his life and his death and resurrection. Here's the question for you. Where are you placing your hope? Where are you putting the weight of your life? Those who trust in Jesus will never be put to shame. Their hope will never be disappointed. He won't let you down, which implies that misplaced hope will disappoint you. Misplaced hope will let you down. So ask yourself this, where do you find yourself most let down? What is it that consumes your thoughts and your energy? Keeping up image, having a good family, making sure your children are happy, making sure the relationships are all working well, finding your joy and your identity in work. These may all be good and decent things, but when they become the main thing, the main hope, they will disappoint. They were never meant to serve that purpose. But Jesus is and Jesus does, and he will never let you down because he died and rose again. That kind of love that we see in the cross of Jesus and in his resurrection, that kind of sacrifice, giving himself to make us his people, uh, becoming no mercy so that we can receive mercy, that kind of gift from Christ, that's the only hope that will never disappoint. Are you trusting him? Are you coming to the living stone and finding yourself given hope in him and sins forgiven? Let me close with an illustration from uh, the final book of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. I told Carly this morning that maybe I should put a once-per-quarter limit on Lord of the Rings illustrations and sermons, but I'm cashing one in today. As we think about the church being the new temple, the colony of heaven on earth, expanding the blessing of the presence of God through our worship, through our witness to the hope that we have in Jesus, there's a beautiful illustration of this at the end of The Return of the King, uh, the, the final book in that series. It's, one, it's part of the story about one of the characters named Sam Gamgee. Sam and Frodo, if you don't remember the last time I shared an illustration from the story, Sam Gamgee and Frodo Baggins are two main characters in this story sent on this adventurous task to destroy this one evil ring of power and bring, restore kind of peace and harmony to uh, their world. Near the end of the story, they've, they've accomplished this goal. Their mission has been successful uh, through many uh, dangers, toils, and snares. And they've come back to their home, which is called the Shire, and they find it devastated. And it's a picture of the devastation of sin in our lives and in the world. These nefarious forces have taken up residence in the Shire. They've cut down all the trees. They've built uh, smoke-producing machines. It's all unnatural and mechanical. And the hobbits come back to the Shire. Frodo and Sam are hobbits. They come back to the Shire, and it's wrecked by this evil. And they're devastated by it. They run off the scoundrels from the Shire. And at a certain point, Sam, who's a farmer, he's a gardener, Sam looks around at all, all the trees that have been cut down, all the devastation that's been done to the land. And he starts to wonder, how in the world are we going to rebuild this to what it was? It's a natural question we can ask about our own lives. We see the effect of sin. 
and long for the kingdom of God to come in our lives, to restore what sin has broken? It's a legitimate question. What can be done to restore what's been lost? And at a certain point, Sam remembers that he's been given a gift. Throughout their journey, at one point, they went into this place called Lorien, or Lothlorien, which is kind of an elven realm where the elves live. And it's beautiful, it's magical, it's protected, it's separated from the rest of the world. And while they're there, they meet the queen of the elves, a lady named Galadriel. And Galadriel gives Sam a gift. It's a small box, and it has dirt from Lorien, which looks like gray powder, and it has one seed of a malorn tree, which is one of these trees that grows in this elvish kingdom. Sam, back in the Shire, sees the devastation, wonders what can be done, takes the box out and remembers that he's got this gift. But he, starts, he looks at what he has, and he says, this is not much. I have one seed. I have a little bit of dirt. What am I supposed to do with this? And his friends say, well, plant the seed where our favorite tree had been cut down, and then spread the dirt all over the Shire and see what happens. And so he does. He plants the seed of the Malorn tree where the, their what they called the party tree had been cut down. And then he spreads the dirt in his own garden and all in different places around the Shire, and he waits. And the next spring, as things are beginning to grow, Sam beholds growth in the Shire like had never been before. And this beautiful tree growing where the old tree had been cut down, full of these beautiful silver leaves that are a reminder of this realm untouched by the corruption of men. The kingdom of God is like that. It doesn't look like much. It looks like a bunch of small living stones stacked on top of each other being built up into a house. It looks like a savior who was rejected by men, who was put to death on a cross, buried in a borrowed tomb, it doesn't look like much. It looks like people doing ordinary things, trying to be faithful in their callings and their families and their work. But God says that that's the way he brings the blessings of the presence of God and the kingdom of God to our lives and to this world. He brings the blessings of heaven into your life. And wherever you go, it's like you're spreading a little bit of that dirt. You're planting those seeds. You're bringing the blessings in the life of heaven where you are. And one day, John the Apostle tells us at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, one day the whole earth will be the temple of God. There will be no temple in the new heavens and the new earth and new Jerusalem. Why? Because the whole earth will be filled with God's presence, God's glory, God's blessing with no sin. But we get to experience a taste of that now, and we get to bring a foretaste of that wherever we are as we come to him, the living stone. Would you pray with me?